you're listening to the Philosophy Now radio show, um, and today we're going to be talking about love. I have with me Simon May, who's the author of the recently released Love, A History, and visiting professor of philosophy at King's, and I thought, I've been reading that, and I thought it was a really informative and insightful work. And I also have with me Edward Harcourt, who's a lecturer at Oxford and a fellow of Keeble College. Unfortunately, our female representative on the side of love is ill, so she couldn't come. So get well soon, Jane, and we'll see you in another time. Um, So before we got started listening to the uh, talking about love uh, per se, I just want to ask the guys a a bit about their own uh, particular interest in the topic of love and philosophy. So Simon, before we start, can you tell us a little about the goals and structure of your book, Love, please? Um, Well, essentially in the book, I've tried to trace the history of the concept in order to at least that's my aim, in order to free it up from what I see Uh as very rigid ideas about what love is. Okay, the the that people have these days is because we have rigid ideas because of what? Well, I I have a theory that love is the last, as it were, um, residue of the divine. It's where Uh most people these days do not believe in a a deity, uh, but they need to believe in something like a deity. A lot of isms and idols have failed, communism and, and so on and that love is the last repository of this hu- very fundamental human need. Okay, um, and I think we're going to be uh, referring to that as we go along. Um, Edward, please, um, can you tell me what's your uh, particular interest in love? Yes, my, my interest in love is, roughly speaking, what love has got to do with the rest of our moral lives. And okay. In particular, I'm interested in seeing how far you can go in modelling love on an Aristotelian virtue. Okay, and I'm sure we'll also talk about that. But first of all, I want to um, get, so we know what we're talking about, I suppose, get some provisional definitions of love. My, my provisional definition of love would be that love is the intention to benefit the beloved. So, uh, but I don't think we'll talk about that. Simon, what would be your definition of love to start off with? Well, I, I have something very, very different, which okay. is that I think love... We love those who hold out a promise of rooting us in the world. Sure. So I have this idea that it's actually not necessarily about loving the good or loving the beautiful or even doing good. Uh-huh. And as is well known, we can fall in love with those who are neither beautiful nor good. Indeed, there are many novels talk, which talk about falling in love with the criminal. And I think that the whole tradition that emphasizes that, which stems essentially from Plato but also has many other developments, mm-hmm. um, is fundamentally misguided. And I, so I think love is about the need to be rooted in the world, okay. or the conditions for, for rootedness in the world. So you don't have really an airy-fairy concept of it in terms of like hearts and flowers, really. It's quite selfish, is that right? Well, I don't think it's selfish as such. Um, I think that there's a need that drives it. And once this need, or even just the promise of that need being met... Uh-huh. has been opened up that gives rise to the most tremendous giving of which human beings are capable okay so okay. a need itself gives rise to giving and i don't see such a dichotomy between okay. selfless and selfish all right okay um edward what a what's your definition of love to start us off with well i agree with quite a lot of what simon has just said i would say very provisionally that love is a certain kind of tie to a unique individual uh-huh. Okay. Um, but what I really want to stress is that I don't think love in itself is either good or bad. Really? Um, okay. So sometimes these 
ties of that kind that we have to unique individuals can bring out in us the most selfless behavior and also be incredibly uplifting for us but also they can be limiting and destructive i don't think love is either one thing or the other okay simon well of course i would then want to ask um edward um you know what it is about an individual that, that evokes this feeling of love okay uh and i would say i'm not sure that well okay there are two kinds of ways of reading that question one is what merits it one is what causes it and i'm not sure that there is it i mean some philosophers have tried to argue that uh there's a certain kind of moral goodness which evokes love and it's only love if the feeling is evoked by that i don't think that's right i'm not sure that there is any unique property that you have to have to make you worthy of love Um, Um, in fact i think very often love is unchosen can i pin you down a bit more though i mean you sort of saying what you you do with love and it's directed towards one person but is it a feeling is it a state of mind is it an attitude Mm. is it something you do or and then therefore what is it that you do sort of thing well that's a good question i mean look i don't think words like feeling or emotion or indeed the word love itself Mm. have any stable usage in ordinary language but they must mean something sure so but when philosophers answer the question you just raised a a huge amount of linguistic tidying up is necessary so if you said to an ordinary non-philosophical person well we have an hour you know love isn't a feeling or love isn't an emotion they'd think you were crazy yeah and obviously there is a perfectly respectable use of the word love on which it is a feeling because we say i felt a surge of love or somebody was lovesick or i was overcome by love and so i did such and such but i think there is also another use of the word love and i would prefer to say that it's an attitude that you have to a unique individual mm-hmm. over the long term and this can express itself in yeah, a great variety of ways sure what including sort of attitude? feelings but also including thoughts intentions other emotions like jealousy envy i would say if i can just break sure. in here that i think love is unquestionably a feeling under by however you define right. feeling okay. but that that feeling is saturated with ideas or thoughts or expectations so that for example you know when we say i mean and i think most people perhaps these days would say love has to be unconditional something against which as you know i argue Mm -hmm. that is a thought about what love should be that saturates the feeling and actually in some sense guides the feeling to certain expectations so i wouldn't make in any case any any strict separation or dichotomy between feeling sure, and thought. Sure, but I'm still... I was, look, I, I want to insist on this. I mean, if we still on haven't what? said what sort of feeling it is. It's just... I mean... I have said what sort of feeling it is. It was part of my definition. It was a, it was a need to be rooted. So you feel... No, I said love is the, love is the rapture we feel... A rapture, ...when okay. the promise right. of rootedness All is right. held out to us Fine. by a certain relationship to another human being. Okay. So sure. it, is, it is unquestionably um, a feeling. Mm-hmm. And what about you, Edward? Yeah, I, mean, I think I'd, I'd say it's an attitude which you have to a unique individual. On the whole, it's an attitude that is very, very long-term. It's not transitory. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's associated with certain particular sorts of a current emotion. It can't be reduced to those. Right. But, for example, love is strongly associated with joy. Mm -hmm. It's strongly associated with upset or anxiety upon involuntary separation, and it's associated with mourning on the death of the beloved. 
Okay. So I would identify the kind of tie that it is with reference to the occurrent, typical occurrent emotional expressions that it has over the, lo- over the so course seems, of somebody's life. So it seems to be, in your case, a type of attachment to an individual. Absolutely. Yeah, I okay. think Ed was absolutely right about that, uh-huh. and that loss is at- completely bound up with love long before we've actually sustained any loss, so that the fear or expectation or possibility of loss is always involved in the, in the attachment that is love and mm-hmm. fundamentally structures it, even when we're, so to speak, happy and, not, and, and loss hasn't happened. So it's always um, tainted by fear. Well, I wouldn't use the word tainted. I just think it's something that, you know, is, is fundamental to our relationship to, to, to any strong attachment. Okay. Um, well, that's your sort of uh, provisional definitions. I suppose to find out how we got to the ideas of love that we have in our culture now we need to go back a bit in history so um for instance taking the book lover history that you've written simon it's uh, you start off with um i think the pre-socratics is that right or do you start off with the, the hebrews well i mean i do mention some of the pre-socratics like empedocles but in, <laughs> in but i don't really treat them in any detail it's really hebrew scripture i place at the head of it because the uh-huh. commands, the the command to love your neighbour as yourself, which arguably is the fundamental precept of Western morality, um, does come from Hebrew scripture. Okay, yeah, sure. And uh, what did the Hebrews mean by love? What did th- those words mean? Well, when interestingly, said, the Hebrews meant various things by love. So, um, mm. I mean, I would argue that they are all species or one or rather they all are as it were expressions of one particular genus of that is love Mm -hmm. but um there is loving kindness hesed Mm -hmm. there is um love of god which is perhaps a more passionate submissive devoted love there is of course there is sort of brotherly love there's friendship love as in Uh jonathan and david's friendship right but th- there isn't in hebrew scripture yet some sort of rigid distinction between these in the sense that we later see in sure. the christian tradition uh-huh. where, where eros and agape are sort of thought of in some sense especially in the protestant tradition as inconsistent so these different sorts of love like friendship and erotic and so on are thought of as yeah compatible. they haven't really ev- evolved their vocabulary very far well they have evolved a very sophisticated ro- vocabulary uh-huh. it's not one that sees these Inconsistencies and dichotomies. Uh-huh. Okay, fair enough. And uh, Edward, you you particularly are interested in Aristotle. What Aristotle has to say about love? Now, Aristotle was when he was the fourth century BC. Is that right? Yeah. So about the same time that the Hebrew scriptures were being uh, codified, I guess. Um, well, so, that's controversial. I think okay. they were a little earlier. All right. Um, so, what does Aristotle tell us about love? Uh, well, big question. Look, uh, actually, so le- briefly, Aristotle, there are two books of the Nicomachean Ethics which are devoted to the subject of what Aristotle calls philia, yeah, which, which is sometimes translated as love, it's sometimes translated as friendship. And is in the word philosophy as meaning love of wisdom mm. audience. Indeed, indeed. Um, and Aristotle draws a three-way distinction between uh, kinds of love. There is what he calls character, 
love or character friendship, which is the kind of love that's only available to people who are virtuous, people who are good. Uh-huh. There's what he calls pleasure friendship, which is something, as it were, you're, then pleasure friendship and interest friendship are two lesser varieties of love, where you're, as it were, in it for what you can get out of it. But what you're in it for differs in both cases. So in interest friendship, I'm in it for certain kinds of benefit to myself. Yeah. Pleasure friendship is something which would come to an end once I stop enjoying it. So it's clearly very unlike the kind of lifelong attachment that I was trying Uh to describe. Um, But before we talk more about Aristotle, which, as you know, I like to do, I just like to agree with Simon that the um, Old Testament refusal to draw to begin an inquiry into love by drawing all kinds of distinctions, mm-hmm. I think is absolutely right. I think that you the do. modern discussion of love, so often you read people who say, well, by the way, I'm only talking about love between parents and children. Or, uh-huh. by the way, I'm only talking about romantic love. And I think it's wrong to begin. It's methodologically wrong and it's substantively wrong to begin the topic by chopping it up into all sorts of tiny little bits. Okay. But what you should do is begin with something you understand and work outwards from that. And if you, if that initial understanding fails you, well, all right, draw a distinction. So you're Not sort of con- you you're contradicting. Uh, the analytical method of philosophy by saying that really though aren't you not at all I'm con- not contradicting the analytical method of philosophy I'm thinking that saying, saying that the analytical method shackles itself right. if it begins by drawing a lot of distinctions plucked out of the sky because often these distinctions are very badly thought through for example parent child love and romantic love let's consider that <laughs> distinction which comes up all over the place you can explain to somebody what parent child love is yeah without any understanding of love because people know what parenthood is or people know what being a child is. So it's the kind of love that, if there is just one kind, exists between two people who are related to one another in a particular way. But romantic love, there's no such thing as a romantic relationship except insofar as the two people are lovers. There's no way independent of an understanding of love, of telling saying what it is okay. for two people to be romantic. So you can start related. off with the parent-child bond and say, oh, that's an example of love. Now you know what love is. Now we're going to apply that well, to... Well, now you know what... Now you've got an idea of what love is. And okay. See what happens next. Simon? Uh, well, I, um, I suppose um, I, would, I would... In order not to agree with Edward too much, which otherwise I'm in <laughs> well, danger of doing... Like. I would... No, 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 no. But, I mean, there is one point I think I disagree with him mm. on, which is that Aristotle does see character friendship uh-huh. as not guided by self-interest. Now, um, that's, the, to me, that's the friendship between two people who right, are alike who are in their characters. Alike in virtue. So this right. is not the pleasure and utility. This is the highest of form of friendship. It is the highest form of friendship. But for Aristotle, it, at least as I read him, um, he, Aristotle always sees um, a conception of the flourishing life and one's understanding of one's own flourishing mm-hmm. as guiding one's action. Right. And that, therefore, even character friendship is, in a sense, guided by one's conception of what's good. The, 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 the good for one. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, he does list some things, you know, some clear benefits that the friends get from each other. Um, I mean, one is that the other is held up as a sort of mirror to them so that they get self-knowledge, which in turn is an independent good. I, don't, I think Aristotle is simply too naturalistic to go in for this whole selfless thing, which has an entirely different, I would say, religious okay. origin. 
Yes. So I, th- I thought I was, you, you were really going to say something that I would disagree with <laughs> when you said that it's, it, the, 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 other, the two inferior kinds of friendship are selfish. But of course, from many Christian moralists have regarded Aristotle's account even of character friendship as selfish. Indeed. Because he says a friend is another self. Indeed. I mean, Luther, of course, mm-hmm. you know, Luther attacks Thomas Aquinas mm-hmm. um, and much of the Catholic tradition for, for, for its um, insufficiently critical espousal of Aristotle. Well, I think the point about the Greek thing is that it's making a whole bunch of different assumptions about what morality is and isn't. That, than we do because of uh, the Christian heritage of the West. Um, would you say that's right? Well, that's a huge subject, and okay. I didn't feel competent to comment on it very quickly. Right. But obviously the Christian heritage takes up Plato, for example, through Augustine, uh-huh. and Aquinas, um, and, and Aristotle, for example, through Aquinas, so profoundly that it's impossible to say that it isn't saturated with Greek thought. Okay. Um, so um, how does Plato... So idea of love differ, or Socrates' idea of love, for instance, differ from Aristotle's because they were quite different uh, philosophers, weren't they? Aristotle well, Plato, and Plato. I mean, say. Plato, if we're going to be very simplistic about it, uh-huh. has sort of two different concepts of love, or at least advances uh-huh. through the, his the characters in his in his dialogue, the Symposium, two different concepts of love. Um, I mean, both of which do differ from Aristotle's. One is that love is a search for our other half, so that love sure. is the search for this lost other half whom we then find and with whom we then feel whole and we still use that metaphor when we describe Mm -hmm. ourselves as being in love and the second one is a more transcendental concept which is the idea that love is the search for some absolute perfect truth or beauty or goodness Uh and both of those and so in other in so it is love in a sense shoots for the heavens it easily becomes otherworldly Okay. And, and both of those are really fundamentally different to Aristotle's much more down-to-earth approach. Okay. Oh, which one is winning in our culture, do you think? Which one is predominant in our culture, I should say? Well, in my view, unquestionably, the platonic one. Okay. Um, so, um, what other different kinds of love have, have philosophers discerned i mean we've talked about this friendship love and this ideal love what other kinds of love are there that philosophers have well eros philia and agape is one distinction that people sometimes trade in but also i think if you look at contemporary philosophers of love um some people seem to take as their starting point the love that parents typically have for their children yeah sure and others take as their starting point um the kind of love which adult lovers of the same generation have for one another. Now, you can call one of those, the second one of those, eros. Right. Not sure which Greek word you'd use for the first one. I think but I think that that's, I th- you don't have to be a hardline believer in the Oedipus complex to think that these distinctions need to, at the very least, to be earned. But right. I think they're probably wrong. Why? Because... I think it's just a fact of human experience that the feelings that we have for our adult friends and lovers are, and indeed for our own children, are mixed up in all sorts of ways with the feelings that we have for our parents. Right. There is no clear dividing line in our minds between you know, we, the, 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 the human emotions don't 
come across a boundary which says, ah, oh, this, this is a parent or this is a child and this is a lover of the same generation. Change gear completely. I mean, On the sure, contrary. Surely if you take that to ex- logical extreme, you can say, oh, we can't really say definitive things about any sort of love because any sort of love we're talking about is mixed up with any sort of feelings we have for anything. I, I think that, uh, well, no, that doesn't follow. I mean, look... It may be possible to think about to say things that are informative about love generally, mm-hmm. uh, without saying anything informative about different kinds of love, because the distinctions between different kinds of love are relatively superficial. But can okay. I say I, I think sure. I think Edward is actually talking about different sorts of relationships in which various kinds of love get embodied. So you've got parent-child, you've got the romantic lovers, you've got the friends, and so on. But within each of those, I think we can actually, you know, separate out different ways of thinking about love. And your question was about were there any other different ways of thinking about love, whatever sort of relationship they actually get embodied in. Mm -hmm. And I think if we, I I think in that sense, there there definitely were others. I mean, there was, is, for example, a whole tradition um, that, um, again, stems from the Greeks, from Epicurus and goes via the Roman poet Lucretius and others right up to Freud via Schopenhauer, so it's a long tradition, which sees love as really just the way in which we idealise those for whom we feel sexual desire. So Mm. um, Lucretius would say, the Roman poet would say, uh, all love is really uh, a sort of deluded idealisation of someone who we just lust after or someone whom in modern, for example, evolutionary parlance we would say you know is the ideal mate for reproducing our genes with well that's that's and a desire I, you know no, desire and no. love aren't necessarily the same thing are they well uh, clearly i mean there's a whole desire tradition the eros tradition yeah. which which does see them as as similar or the same so that um or, or rather that all love is is a desire obviously not that all desire is love mm-hmm. but but uh, so it's fine to talk about love as desire um, any, anyway, in this tradition, the the idea is we feel very strong attraction to someone, mm-hmm. and in order to hold them, in order to muster, as it were, enough energy to go after them and to put in the you know what what it takes to get them and rear children with them, we have to idealize them as this great, unique person, uh, you know, who's the meaning of our life and so on. But that actually, what's at work is raw sexual attraction. I'm just answering your question about sure. are there any other ways of thinking about well, love? That's I, one of them. My immediate response to that is if you over-idealise somebody, then you're setting yourself up for a fall, aren't you? Because as soon as you figure out what they're really like, you're going to be Well, I mean, the contemporary evolutionary biologists would say, so what? Because the point of life uh-huh. is um, to continue itself, is, is to reproduce. Right. So, you know, if you suffer, Schopenhauer says this repeatedly, I mean, if you suffer, uh, or if you, um, I mean, very, very topical, you know, if you ruin your entire career because you have an extramarital affair and you lose everything you've worked for mm-hmm. your whole life, we say, what a waste, how pointless. Schopenhauer says, from the point of view of the species, it's anything but pointless. It's yeah. just the point. It's the working because out of who, the survival who, instinct. Yeah, who cares about one career yeah, compared to true. propagating your genes? Mm-hmm. Mm. Well... I suppose, yeah, many reactions to that line of thought. I don't know whether you were advancing that line of thought. No, I'm not advancing my... my, I've told you what I think love is. I'm just just answering the question whether there are other conceptions of love than those we've already discussed. 
Well, that's an evolutionary psychological, I suppose, uh, point of view and love, but it's, it does seem rather pessimistic. Um, and bringing in your um, interest, Edward, in the moral, the relationship of love and morality, I mean, what, what is the relationship that you try to draw out there between love and the rest of our moral uh, behaviour? Well, I think really when I said the relationship between love and the moral life, what I was trying to get at was uh, something that I said at the start, which is that I don't think love in itself is either good or bad. So mm -hmm. what I'm interested in is trying to map the different ways in which love can be uh, a good or bad making feature of our life. Okay, so, so I'm not so much interested in the idea of love as an attraction to virtue mm -hmm. or whether love is based on the idea that the loved one is virtuous. I'm more interested in trying to model love on, an Arist on, on Aristotle's picture of virtues and their contrasting vices. So Aristotle had this idea that every virtue is, as it were, the middle space in a bigger field that uh -huh. divides up into, you've got the excellence in the middle, excess on one side mm. and deficiency on the other. So right. um, generosity is a mean between profligacy and stinginess. Okay. Right? Now, perhaps that's a little bit too tidy, but that gives us a model. And I'm interested to explore how far we can go in applying that kind of model to thinking about love. And for my money, the sphere, the Aristot Aristotelian field that corresponds to the giving and uh, the, the, the giving of money uh, would be something like attachments or mm -hmm. bonds to a unique other. And okay. often, what we think of as the, you know the thing that gets put on a pedestal is actually not love in general. It's not anything that takes up that whole sphere. Right. It's just the excellence in the middle. It's just the possibly quite narrow central space. And there are all kinds of attachment and dependency on other people that are terribly, terribly destructive, but that are nonetheless variant manifestations of that same need to attach oneself to a particular other. And I think it's okay. expressive of our moral natures and also, of course, partly dependent on chance, but it's expressive up to a point of our moral natures, the extent to which we're capable of going in for love that belongs in that you know, can I just, middle bit of Can excellent. I just make sure I've got, got you here? You're saying that um, Aristotle believes in, in uh, a balance between extremes and, and love is one of these, so that the... Um, a sort of a good Aristotelian way of loving would be not to have too strong an attachment, for instance? No, 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 no. It's a, mis it's a misunderstanding of Aristotle to think that he... I mean, it's true that there's Aristotle's doctrine of the mean, mm -hmm. that every virtue is a mean between two extremes. But as I said, that's, that's a bit too tidy right. anyway. But even if it isn't too tidy, um, the doctrine of the mean is not a doctrine of moderation in all things. OK, isn't it? Okay. Um, all it says is that uh, for every sphere of virtue and vice you know the, the virtue is somewhere in the middle and there are various vices surrounding it with respect to the same kind of behavior be it the giving or taking of money or okay. attachment to particular others but can i can, can i just ask sure. because i think it's a very interesting line of thought do you see love as a mean between two as it were different non-loving vices or do you see love the, the best love as a mean between two sort of vice-like forms of love. Again, I don't want to insist that there's just one on either no, side. No, there may be lots of different subdivisions of this sphere. But uh, it's definitely the second. 
Right. So love is, I think the word love, like the word art or the word theatre, is ambiguous. So when somebody storms out of a play saying this isn't theatre, they're not expressing a claim about the ontology of art, right? They're not saying that this doesn't meet the definition of theatre. They're saying it was a lousy play, right? Okay. Similarly, when Shakespeare in the sonnet that all philosophers of love quote sooner or later when he says love is not love that alters when it alteration finds he's not he's not asserting a definition of love he's saying that in his view love that alters when it alteration finds is a bad form of love but the dependencies and the destructive entanglements and the you know the couple who stay together for 40 years and they never manage to settle down together and they just annoy each other all day long for all that time that is love too so then what are, the vi- what are the vice-like forms of love between which the right sort of love is the mean? I'm not sure that we've got words for them in ordinary language, but I think if you want a good guide to where to start thinking about how to carve up this sphere into subspaces, look at attachment theory. So secure attachment would be something like the norm and insecure attachment, the sub-varieties of insecure attachment, Mm. where either you can't express your needs to the loved one, you freeze them out because you're anxious about provoking a rejection by them, or alternatively, that you're too entangled, you can't pursue your own projects, Mm. you feel guilty when you're separated from them because you think they still want me to be around, that kind of thing. I think attachment theory has an awful lot to tell us about that. Okay, great. I think we're going to play a track now. This will be Leonard Leonard Cohen and um, Alexandra leaving. Suddenly the night has grown colder The God of love Preparing to depart Alexandra hoisted on his shoulder They slipped between The sentries of the heart Upheld by the simplicities of pleasure They gained the light They formlessly entwined And radiant beyond your widest measure They fall among The voices and the wine It's not a trick Your senses all deceiving A fitful dream The morning will exhaust Say goodbye To Alexandra leaving Then say goodbye To Alexandra long Though she sleeps upon your satin Even though she wakes you with a kiss Do not say the moment was imagined Do not 
nuts do To strategies like this Has someone long prepared For this to happen Go firmly to the window Drink it in Exquisite music Alexandra laughing Your first commitments Tangible again And you who had The honor of her evening And by that honor Had your own restored Say goodbye to Alexandra leaving Alexandra leaving with her lord Even though she sleeps upon your satin Even though she wakes you with a kiss Not say the moment was imagined Do not stoop to strategies like this Has someone long prepared for the occasion In full command Plan you right Do not choose a coward's explanation That hides behind The cause and the effect And you who are Bewildered by a meaning Whose code was broken Crucifix uncrossed Say goodbye To Alexandra leaving Then say goodbye To Alexandra lost Say goodbye To Alexandra leaving Say goodbye to Alexandra Lost. Hi, that, that was Al- Alexandra Leaving by Leonard Cohen. I'm Grant Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine, and you're listening to the Philosophy Now radio show. I have with me uh, Simon May, who's recently authored the book Love, A History, and Edward Harcourt, who's from um, uh, Keeble College and his special interest in Aristotle's view of love. Now, uh, we're just going to go into the, the common understanding or misunderstanding that's prevalent in today's culture about love. I mean, what is love in the common understanding? And if it's gone wrong, what's the alternative? Uh, who wants to start that, Simon? Just to ask a small question. Um, yeah. Well, I think that uh, obviously there's no one single monolithic view, but I think that 
a dominant, probably the dominant view of love, if you look at romantic love or parent-children love and so on, so very different forms of love, is that to be genuine, it needs to be firstly unconditional, Mm -hmm. secondly enduring, and thirdly selfless. And there are other qualities I could reduce, but let's just take those. That's what you're saying is the common understanding I'm saying of that love. is. And so people say, you know, I love my child unconditionally. Right. I know my partner loves me unconditionally. Uh-huh. Uh, love, well, um, Edward just cited the Shakespeare sonnet. Yeah. I think um, Shakespeare, one never knows what Shakespeare himself, of course, is thinking, but I think there he gives, yeah. he gives voice to a view which I totally disagree with. And I think That's that, that love should be constant that, and forever, really. Not that it should be, but the, the assumption that in order to be genuine, it is going to last. Right. An assumption, by the way, that Aristotle did not share. Um, so there are people who dissented from their view. Anyway, yeah. if we take those as the sort of three of the principal yeah. components of how people think about love, I think that they are, all of them, are errors. Uh-huh. And they are errors that stem from a very particular historical development that I try to trace in my book. Sure. I mean, nothing that human beings do can be unconditional. We are creatures located in space and time okay. and trapped in causality. And the idea that we can do things unconditionally is, in my view, total vanity. So, so how did this come about? Right. And the way I reconstruct it is that in when it was believed that all genuine love came from God, which is a perfectly respectable view from within a religious yeah, worldview. Sure. Um, well, God is love, I think. God is, is love. And also the idea is, which you find in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and above all developed in Protestantism by, well, developed by Augustine and then by Luther, is that love is a gift from God given by grace Mm -hmm. now if love is a gift from god that human beings can express only by divine will as it were Mm -hmm. then of course the love that gets expressed through human beings that's been given to us by god is going to be as god himself is unconditional and eternal right because those are god's characteristics by definition so, and that is okay, yeah. I'm saying, from within the religious system. Isn't, isn't things, it already deceitful even then because you're no, requiring human beings to be something well, that they can't be? Well, well, it is and it isn't because at least it's coupled with, a, with a, a doctrine of modesty where human beings are not saying, look, I'm capable of this. They're saying, I'm enacting this. I'm a channel for this because mm-hmm. God has given it to me. So it's, it's not coupled to this dreadful conceit that we have that we are capable of it indeed that we just expect it as a matter of course from any genuine relationship which i think is hugely destructive to love um when belief in god starts declining after the 18th century we this these axioms about love get left over mm-hmm. even after the theore- the the theological framework that alone gave them sense has gone that's so unconditional people, eternal exactly so people start thinking oh well you know uh, human love and i expect this from my from those i love uh, should be unconditional eternal and entirely selfless which it cannot be because those are not that because we are creatures who who cannot achieve those things right. we live in a world of causality we and we live in a world of desire we cannot do things without desire so okay. I think this has landed us in terrible trouble, and that is the reason why it's happened. Okay, uh, Edward? Can I comment on that? So let me have a go at 
defending the claim that love is unconditionally enduring and selfless. I mean, I'm, I'm less sure about the selfless than I am about the other two. But I think there's a sensible and I, I take your point about uh, the theological hangover. There are unhelpful and mistaken ways of understanding what we mean by unconditional and enduring when we're talking about love. But let me have a go at explaining why, if we understand those correctly, then it turns out to be true after all, that it's a mark of love, that it's unconditional and that it's enduring. So here's the bad way of thinking about unconditional. The idea is that however dreadful he is, I'll forgive him anything, as it were. As it were. It's an expectation yeah. on a lover that no matter how much they're let down, no matter how much they're abused and lied to and so on, if it's really love that they feel for this ghastly person, they'll forgive. Well, that's... That's an idealization. That's not true. But still, let's just suppose that you can't forgive this ghastly person that you're tied well, to. I'm, of course, not talking about forgiveness. I'm talking about love. But anyway. All right. Let's suppose that you can't. And they disappoint your every expectation. It may nonetheless be a feature of the kind of tie that you have to them that, damn it, it doesn't go away. So you're stuck with your tie to this awful person yes but and Edward, you may have to work very you there, very hard in order is, to try and get rid of it and fail yeah okay. but you are now you've but you've got it wrong because all that's happened is that the question's got pushed back one step hmm. why are you persisting not because it's unconditional but because there's some other condition that you happen not to have thought of or raised that is keeping love going and I have a theory that it's this ontological thing, but whatever uh -huh. your theory is hmm. the reason why you keep going despite the abuse which of course, I wouldn't mm -hmm. for a second deny you do. Well, people is do. that or I mean, I don't mean you personally. Uh, of course, mm -hmm. I mean I mean that that the, you know, people, many of us do. Yeah, yeah. Many of us do and have done. Is because something else is at work that's keeping us riveted. And what is that? Something and the problem. Else? Well, I was just just going to say oh. the the problem is that you know, people because people are trapped in the Platonic tradition. Which says without knowing love, it, the idealist, it, the idealist view without of love. knowing it, yeah. that says that we love that which is good, mm -hmm. okay, or indeed the Aristotelian tradition, which is based on virtue. Well, why, why then, would you want no, no, to just, love just, something just, which was Just let good. me finish. Then, well, the fact is, we don't love, as Edward has quite rightly said, we go on loving people, even mm, yeah. when, or many of us do, even when they, yeah. you know, abuse us and so on. So, the, the reason why Edward, who I think is trapped from what he's just said in precisely the conventional view, uh -huh. say, well, that means love is unconditional is because they are thinking platonically. In other words, love can only be um, love focuses on the good. So if the good isn't there, that means love must be unconditional. Okay. I'm saying love is not aroused by the good. Right. I'm saying it's the other way around. We project goodness and beauty onto those who we love. Okay, so but why we do we love, love them, them for in the other first, reasons yeah, than wh their beauty why, and goodness? Why do we love them then? We love them, well, this is my particular theory. Sure. We love them because they have this mysterious power uh -huh. of rooting our lives in the world. What does that mean, rooting? Um, rooting means that our lives, I mean, this is obviously uh, uh, a very subjective thing. It means uh -huh. that. Uh, and by the way, not just people can do this. A landscape can do this. A work of art can do this. Sure. Um, all sorts of people and things can do it. We have a sense of, and I think that's what we have when we have this sense of recognizing somebody. You know, people often say love starts with recognition, mm -hmm. and it's not it's not some virtue we're recognizing. It's something about them that gives us a sense that our life is 
um, meaningful. It's well, meaningful is not quite the word. That 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 our life is given validity. That our life is given presence. It's the being. That's why I call it ontological. Uh, ont- I mean, ontological means the study of being. Uh, it means people. the study of being, and I am struggling for words, but to define it. But you know, that's that. In a sense, ontological rootings is no more difficult to define than beauty or goodness. I mean, philosophy. Or no more easy to define. Let's say. Or no easier to define. Sorry, this is what, you know, philosophy has been struggling for two thousand yeah. years to define beauty, okay. and there's no snappy phrase that does it. But I can give you one. Uh, one Im- one important aspect of ontological rootedness, which is that we have the sense of returning to some fundamental origin. Okay. Now that could come through meeting someone of the same ethnic background. It could come to meeting someone of the same social background. It could come to meeting someone of the same um, uh, virtue, um, the same ethical background. So it can come from many things. It's back to the womb. But it, sort of well, thing. it is, and I think that's one of the reasons why we have. Uh, but I don't see this as a negative thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking also about it as an experience. I'm not saying we are actually, in some sense, regressing. But of course, thinkers from Plato, whose myth of returning to origins I mentioned before, right up to Freud, who talks about the feeling that lovers have, the oceanic feeling, as a regression mm-hmm. to a primitive stage. I think that what I'm talking about has actually been given voice in the tradition, mm-hmm. but so to speak in the wrong context. Right. Because what I'm keying it to is this sense of rootedness. So to give you one concrete example, I think the sense of being rooted in the world always comes with a sense of returning to an origin, which sure. I don't see as a problem. You know, like many people say, regression uh-huh. is something infantile. Okay, and it would have. Yeah, what do you say in response to that? But look, I, I'm not quite sure that I've grasped what you're saying about love being unconditional. Because, so you said the usual argument is that if love were aroused by the good, then it wouldn't stick around when you discovered that the loved one was bad after all. And okay, good, it, but it does stick around. Now most people draw the wrong conclusion from that, namely that love's unconditional. In fact, the right way to make sense of the fact that love sticks around even when you're being disappointed and lied to and beaten up and so forth um, is that there must be some one other thing that love is aroused by. And I don't actually see why... I mean, I'm sure that what you say is true of some loves, but... I don't see why we should sign up for the view that it's true of all of them. I mean, that are you really meeting your other half or returning to something if you're a victim of love and you just can't detach yourself from some relationship that's either abusive or in both directions or dependent or got something terrible, some entanglement that's destructive, but that you can't shake off. Okay. I don't see uh, why you, you want to say that. Do that, Simon? Well, obviously, at some point, almost every word we use, uh-huh. you know, does have to become a matter of definition. So, right. um, but I do think that if we take, I think that my theory does account for the very different ways in which, in fact, love has been viewed. Uh-huh. So, for example, you know, I would say when Aristotle talks about love being the highest love, that is, character love, being between people of similar virtue, mm-hmm. what he is talking about, he is articulating one way in which this recognition, 
might take place. In this case, it's taking place through a recognition of virtue. It's recognition of mm. the, the so, validation yes, of, of self. Mm. Exactly. Dalva, so yeah. I'm actually saying, although I'm saying I'm putting forward a different point of view, the point of view I'm putting forward, in a sense, accommodates the key features of the other points of view. Or when, when a, a Christian or Jewish mystic talks of love as a return to God, as a return to your source in God, mm-hmm. something we also read in Plato in the Phaedrus, um, that too it's a very different way of talking to the aristotelian way we've just discussed but that too articulates i think what i'm trying to get across which is the idea of love as a as seeking a return to some fundamental source not any old source yeah. but something that we conceive as being really the source of our being okay return implies that you were there to start with though doesn't it i mean isn't that a problem for you know no i don't think so i mean i don't think any christian mystic thinks that when he's returning to his spiritual source in god that he was there with god well maybe return uh, but, is the wrong but, but, word but, but you know use, i mean so. the, the source is the i mean like the soil and the seed are the source mm-hmm. of the tree right um, you know, the tree is not the same as the seed and the, no. and the soil. So I don't think that the two things need to be exactly the same in order for my metaphor to work. Sure. Edward, you're yeah, again, I'm, I'm just, I think that fits some loves beautifully, but I'm still not convinced that it fits them all. Well, which take loves a, do you think it doesn't take fit? A, okay, take a couple who uh, live together for many, many years and they're always bickering, always arguing. All one, always telling each other off. They have a perverse form of intimacy. They can't achieve any real intimacy or they can't be, even get comfortable with one another. But they wouldn't... The idea of being apart is not on their horizon at all. Somehow or other, they're knitted together. Now, um, can I interrupt? Can I just the, ask, is that not just possibly due to, um, you know, they used to li- love each other because they had, um, you know, they had a, a, a conception of each other as good and they're just sort of hanging on with the memories of the love that they used to have rather well, than that they have any love now. You can describe the case however you want, but right. the case I'm describing doesn't depend on their once having been something else that's now turned into this, mm-hmm. as I put it, perverse form of intimacy. Um, it seems to me that, I mean, you could say that what they want is company or companionship or being with one another. But certainly if you look at what they think is good about being with one another, it certainly won't be returning to something or recognition. And indeed, if you ask them, well, what's good about being with so-and-so, they might say nothing's good about it. My husband, he's terrible. You know, just give you a catalogue of the other person's vices. And I think this points to a kind of not just to worry about the example, but a methodological worry about your generalization, which is that you're trying to say what love always is, but in a way that necessarily takes us, in some cases at least, a very long way from what the lovers think it is. So there are some pairs of people who will say, when I met her, I felt I was returning to my lost other half and I've always felt it. And there are other couples who are bound together in what I would say is structurally rather similar way, but who wouldn't dream of saying a thing like that. Now, why do you want to say that, as it were, what you, the philosopher, say uh, sums up what love really is, as opposed to taking the lover's word for it? If you take the lover's word for it. Uh, Do you want to reply to that, Simon? Um, well, because because I think that you know we often think we're doing saying that that, that we're doing something which um, actually isn't what we're doing, right? Right. Fine. So, um, uh, in in I, I I mean I, I myself 
at, you know, in the times I've greatly loved in my life have not necessarily been aware or thought of myself as returning to some origin. I mean, this sure. is after, you know, reflection um, before and while writing the book. These thoughts have occurred to me as explaining a lot of the feelings I have, but I don't think it's true generally in our lives that we are constantly and precisely aware of exactly everything that's going on. I mean, I, no, well, that's so I true. See, but I mean, I guess the question is: is it is it really true that what you say is, is that all love is reducible to what you claim it to be? And I, I guess that's what your question really is, isn't it, Edward? Yeah, I mean, well, I, think I mean, that it what is you say fits fits I mean, some loves really well, but why yeah. does it? What, as it were, why, 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 are, why are all people? How would you go about showing that? All because I think who there are many forms of attachment that. that aren't love. Now, as I said already, you yeah. know, all definition has an arbitrary element. I mean, when 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 Plato tells us in the Symposium that love, all love is aroused by beauty, he doesn't he doesn't begin to, um, you know, uh, justify it. I mm-hmm. mean, or let alone give empirical examples and go through every single relationship existing in Athens. You know, as Edward yeah. wants me to do now. Uh, and, you know, it says, look, all the lovers say that they're inspired by beauty. Um, I don't think it's possible within the space of a 300-page sure book or indeed anywhere to do that sort of empirical research. I'm that point of view, though, wouldn't he? I mean, you, not to say that you haven't, but I mean, it's like... Well, I have it's not, it's not a, argument. It's not an arbitrary thing for Plato to say this. He, he says it because it fits in his whole metaphysics, let's say. Um, but that doesn't mean that he's right in saying that is all love is beauty. Well, I mean, no. I mean, Plato, for example, advances, or, or rather, Diotima strokes Socrates, uh, who are two characters in this dialogue, mm-hmm. um, advance the argument about love as the search for absolute beauty without any empirical evidence whatsoever. Not a single relationship is adduced to justify that and that's proper philosophy that is anyway uh we're coming near to the end of the show now i mean i know we've just uh scratched the surface of of love really i've got half a dozen questions that i didn't really even get a chance to answer um but just to um and finally any anything anybody wants to plug to the listeners any i mean the book that simon's just written is called love a history and it's by yale and as i say i thought it was a really insightful view of love that's quite um sort of critical of modern complacency about love and also giving a, a sort of a s- historical story of how we came to think about love the way uh, we came to think that's right would you say simon yes i think uh, it, it is an attempt uh, uh, to, to trace the evolution, as, as it were, how we got to where we are now, and also to show how many, how many kind, how many conceptions of love have have existed, and in some ways have got lost along the way, sure. and are due possibly for a revival. Okay, and uh, um, Edward, do you have anything you want I'd to mention? I'd be very delighted to add my voice to plugging Simon's book. <laughs> okay, <laughs> well there you go. We're all we're all in favour of love a history. Thank you. You'll all be paid. Okay, good, and good, good commissions. And I've got just a, a brief thing I want to say on on behalf of Philosophy Now. I'll, I'll read it out, in fact, because Philosophy Now is the magazine that I work for. And as part of its twentieth anniversary celebrations, Philosophy Now is creating a new annual award for contributions in the fight against stupidity. Nominees can be anyone who has made an outstanding recent contribution to promoting knowledge, reason or public public debate. The prize will be a book token. It's not. And the first winner will be announced at the Philosophy Now 20th Anniversary Philosophy Festival in London's Conway Hall on the 18th of December uh, 
and if you go to the website you can find all sorts of details about there's there's like hundreds of events going on on that day at conway hall which is in um holborn but if you've got a nomination uh for the uh fight against stupidity and uh, please send them to rick dot lewis at philosophy now dot org uh Oh, this this year this uh, this event is, uh, and or so let me repeat that Rick Lewis at philosophynow.org, or you can go to philosophynow.org, which is the website at Stroke Anniversary, and make a nomination from there. I also want to briefly plug my books, which are uh, Love, Solitude, and Destruction: A Book of Short Stories and the Meta Revolution. Both are available at Amazon. Uh, thank you for listening, uh, and uh, possibly uh, you'll be hearing from us next week. Okay, we're going to, I think, finish with The Cure and Love Cats. <laughs>